Welcome back, everyone, to the Mind Body Mentor Podcast. My name is Stephen Jaggers, and I am your host. On this podcast, we pick apart the powerful patterns of masters in the realms of mind and body. And on this episode, I got to sit down with Mark Groves, who is an incredible just wealth of knowledge in all things human relationships and relating. I probably could have talked to this brother for hours, (laughs) but we'll have to get him back on the podcast again soon. If you want to support this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could uh, just hop on iTunes or Spotify and leave us a five-star review. I read each and every one of those, and uh, we are actually going to be doing an Organifi giveaway, so uh, go leave your review. I will pick uh, at random one of you guys, and um, I will contact you and, and send you some free Organifi. So... That being said, if you do want to just go pick up some Organifi uh, and support this podcast, use the code MindBodyMentor for 15% off. Also, check, go check out my website. I got some, some events coming up, some um, somatic release breathwork events, also trainings coming up. Uh, if you want to stay in the know with the Mind Body Mentor, uh, go check out my website. That's steven-jaggers.com. And uh, you'll be receiving all of the updates as far as events and trainings go. And yeah, that's it for now. Please enjoy this uninterrupted podcast with Mark Groves. All right, I'm here with Sir Mark Groves. Sir, Such a, I like that. You like that? <laughs> Feels weird. British. Hello. Sir so Mark Groves. Really excited to be here. Should we just do the whole podcast in an accent? <laughs> yeah. You ever tried to do an accent for the whole day? Yeah, once when I was like 19, I we met these girls and I pretended I was Irish. Was but I name? couldn't keep up the... It was Mark, but I couldn't keep up the charade. <laughs> I couldn't. I was just too tired. After like two hours, that was funny. They called you on your bullshit? No, I just gave up started speaking in Canadian accent. Oh, shit. All right, dude. So... You've been in, like I feel like I've seen you a few times in Sedona. It seems like you spent a lot of time here. Uh, yeah, in my most recent life, um, we did. We were here in November and then back um, now. So I hadn't been here before that, though. Mm. Uh, I had, I didn't realize the treasures in the desert. You know, what have you like? What do you feel like your biggest takeaway of spending time here in Sedona has been? Just presence, you know, there, when you're here, there's so much nature around you. Like it's mm-hmm. one thing that I find different than the Pacific Northwest, like being up in Vancouver or Oregon or Washington, um, in Vancouver, Canada, is that uh, the, the miracles of nature are very explicit there. Like, you know, it's rainforest and it's butterflies and everything is just in your face mm-hmm. in such a good way, but you can't not be in awe. And I think what's cool about the desert is, you have an appreciation for, uh, you and I were speaking about this on the hike, like you have an appreciation for the resilience, the fortitude, the, mm. uh, you know, like a tree looks like it's dying and, and it's sprouting everything and it just shows you uh, another side. Like you have to look a little deeper to see um, 
the miracles that are around. And, and my sister, you know, she said to me once when we were in the desert that it shakes loose more than just your transmission of your car. And I was like, <laughs> so true. Yeah, it's incredibly, everything that's here is very resilient. Yeah. I feel like even the people that just live in the desert and the animals and the plants and everything, it just creates a sort of resilience where it's like, it's almost the opposite. I mean, you know, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest for a little while, but I lived in Hawaii, which is more like, you know, um, tropic. And it's, it's, magic. it's the opposite. It's like everything grows so well there. And then here it's like everything is just fighting to grow. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, I think the biggest sort of experience that I keep having here is just consistent awe. Because you go, there's hundreds of hikes, you know. Hundreds. At the end of every street, there's a path going into the mountains, which I find so incredible, kind of like a dream for me. And then uh, you're just like these majestic views, no matter where you look. You don't have to go far to earn a really good view, which is really nice. Yeah, everywhere you go you could you could spend the rest of your life here in Sedona and explore every day and still not get to everything which is just like such a uh, it makes me excited yeah brother so you know I I remember coming across your videos a while ago um, actually when I was single and I was like ah this guy just, just a lot of the stuff he just makes sense and now I've been in a more of a committed relationship for a year and a half and I've found that your information is like <laughs> lands just as strong for, for me in a, in a committed relationship. Um, but yeah, like I really just want to, I'm, I'm curious, like why is this work so important to you specifically? Like why is this relational this relational work so important to you? You know, the work for me was uh, born of like my own relational challenges. You know, I, I used to work in sales and I was very interested in how do you manipulate human behavior? Like how do I get someone to buy this thing? Or I used yeah. to work at like a Best Buy, but in Canada it was called Future Shop and we'd sell extended warranties, mm. you know, classic, don't hate me. I had to, it was survival. Uh, you know, paying for college, all those things. But what's so interesting is like most of my desire was to understand how do I get someone to do something. I had a book called How to Get Anyone to Do Anything, you know, and and I still keep that in my bookshelf just to remind me of of like the movement from wanting to get what I needed to feel safe or secure or whatever it is mm. to a place where in my later 20s I went through a breakup and I really started to ask myself, like, why am I so good at talking about everything but my feelings? Like, it's not a skill set issue. There's something more going on here. There's something deeper. And then I started to dive into, like, wanting to understand why do some relationships last and others not. The sales that I used to do, I also used to be a pharmaceutical rep. All these lifetimes now, I'm looking back and <laughs> got karmic uh, <laughs> repair to do. <laughs> but when I look back, so much of that though taught me how to read data and research and all that kind of stuff and so I started to study romantic relationships and I went back to school did a program in positive psychology which to me really spoke to me because you know formally psychology was about studying what's wrong with people 
yeah. studying uh, how do we fix that thing as opposed to, you know, that work of positive psychology being born from the idea of like, why don't we study what's right? Why don't we focus on how do we thrive or how do we flourish? And I really wanted to look at that from the context of relationship. And, you know, I, it doesn't take research to support this statement, but there is plenty to support it, which is that if your, your connections, romantic and otherwise, or otherwise, um, will have such a significant impact on your health and have a direct impact on your inflammation, leaky gut, all these types of things, healing. Um, and, and that's one reason that it's just so important to me because, I mean, that's one of many. And, and, and I think it's because the, we're not taught these things. You know, like I had to experience a relational, let's call it a quote-unquote failure. Even that we define relational endings as failures is such bullshit. Yeah. And it speaks to this sort of fear as a collective that we have of any ending. Of death itself. Right. And, and not being able to actually see the significance and the wisdom in an ending that mm. we so hold on too tight to things. We so hold on, to, especially to relationships, not even seeing that, even letting go of the you who chose that relationship and allowing the relationship container to shift, even within it, uh, you to shift, your partner to shift. Um, all of that is just so important to learn how to do. And it often just takes some sort of rock bottom. And I speak more about romantic relationships, but that's only because that's the place where we seem to be most willing to do the work. Yeah. You know, we might experience it's it probably with because people experience the most pain there. Yeah, and there's something about love, you know, yeah. that, that motivates us to, like, seek that connection, that look at, like, what The Notebook does to us, or, like, Disney movies, which The Notebook at least has some realistic notion of what unconditional love can be like. Disney really gives us this other sort of metric that there's this person who's going to save us. One person has to be the one needing to be saved. The other person's this knight that comes in and... Those narratives, we don't realize how much they shape our expectations. And, you know, I think really when you look at previous generations, they didn't marry for love for the most part. And yeah. And, you know, and so you take skills that it took to keep something together that wasn't based on love and then expect those things to hold it together today when our very expectation is like this fleeting Disney experience. Um, and I think love is as I've gotten older, I've just realized that that love is both the excitement and the adventure, but it's also this calm and this safety and this quiet, mm. you know, and uh, I never would have really sort of formally defined it that way at like 19 or 20, you know, yeah. when I was putting on Irish accents and <laughs> trying to chase it. Mm. Yeah. We have such an issue with, um, with ending in our culture. And I, I remember being in, in a, a physiology class and um, my teacher explained what cancer is on a cellular level. Mm -hmm. And it's basically cells that don't die. Yeah. S like cells that uh, basically have, you know, switched their, their genetic code or whatever, but they, they, they keep, um, they keep growing over and over and over again. And they don't have that, that death piece because it really takes, 
it really takes ending to start the new beginning. And just like you see it out here in the desert, you know, you see so many plants die and then you see other cactus just being birthed yeah. right, right from it. And I guess specifically in relationship, you know, in a committed relationship, how do you hold space for your partner's growth? Like, that's currently like what I feel like I have a struggle with. Um, as far as, you know, wanting something for them, you know, wanting to hold space, not being a therapist necessarily, just listening to them. Yeah. Um, not necessarily enabling their like self-limiting, you know, defeating right. prophecy, but then also giving them the space to, to like be, become a new person every day. Right. You know, and it's such a, it's such a hard balance. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, if you think about it, like formerly relationships were not containers for expansion because so much of what you're speaking to is like, how do I uh, invite my partner to continue to expand while acknowledging maybe my fear that they're going to grow away from me yeah, um, or outgrow me, you know, because these are just human fears yeah. uh, and, and they need a seat at the table too. You know, and, and when we can sit with that and say, I'm afraid that or I'm a, whatever the fear might be, um, then we're making explicit what is trying to implicitly control or suppress someone's growth or expansion. Mm. You know, it's like when someone suppresses their partner's light, it's usually because of that fear that they'll get too big or someone else will notice their light and, and then yeah. will lose them. And you think of the, you know, sort of original vows, let's call them like to honor and obey. I mean, we, we know that one's gone. Uh, and also, till death do us part. I think that's a really fascinating one because I think about it from the context of are we speaking about a mortal death? Are we speaking about the death of, the continued deaths of self that occur? And, and so when you think about like these vows, till death do us part, when we're not thinking about them in this context, if we're thinking about them literally just in mortality, then our relationship becomes sort of a prison, right? It becomes a container that says you can't go. Even though your soul might demand that you go, even though I might not be doing the personal work or growing or with you, you have to stay. And so that needs to be shattered in order to really be in a healthy relationship because, you know, when my partner and I, Kylie, when we in our previous 1.0 relationship, because uh, we broke up for nine months last year. In the previous version, I remember her really just feeling like I'm feeling called to go, but I have no reason to go. And I remember saying to her, like, our relationship will never be a prison. Like, I will love you no matter what you choose. I might have grief. I might have sadness. I might have anger. But I'll always come back to grace. And that was the hardest work I've ever had to do, but what was really... Um, profound in the experience for me was recognizing that when it is a choice to choose something, which it always is, but when it's consciously like I'm choosing this today, mm. how would I need to show up to get my partner again, to keep them or to earn them or to whatever. When you honor the reality that out of however many billion people, they choose this, mm. like then you are seeing that the, 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 let's say relational sort of contract is daily. And 
I think you hold space for their growth when you can say, I'm afraid you might grow away or what. And when we, there's space for our growth too, and that we're not abandoning our growth for the relationship. Because if we start to abandon our growth or like fear they're going to leave or fear they're going to get too big, and we don't get big with them. The container has to continue to expand to hold both of us. And the relationship will either crack or, or, or expand, you know, and that's true of all growth, of all expansion, right? Yeah. And so the relational container is always dying too, which is kind of neat when you think about it because think about our evolution, our personal work. I mean, I'm certainly not the same person I was a week ago, two weeks ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, those relational containers back when I was 20 are fucking well fractured, you know, and they couldn't hold who I was becoming. And not because of my partner, but because I had no consciousness over, uh, you know, I feared partners growing away from me. I feared all those things. And I still, it's still a reality of being human. There's a desire that we want love to be this ever expansive with one person. And this idea that when the relationship ends, we are like sort of beginning again. Uh, As opposed to seeing that uh, just someone more expanded will step into that space, even a more expanded version of us. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it goes from being scarce-minded about it, where we want to cling, yeah. to allowing the free flow of both people. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the um, the things that will come up inside of you, those insecurities will start yeah. to show themselves, and then you either you have a choice with that. You can either allow those insecurities to fester which will create more dissonance in itself or you can take the choice and use those those you know like never waste a trigger it's like right. you can you can use those things that are coming up as fuel for the expansion between each other right and like i think would awareness of it be the be like the um the catalyst or the piece that you you need to like what's the practicality of that well the relationship there is no greater place that you'll experience an invitation to your own growth and evolution than and your own death right to your and to parts of yourself to the, all your limits like think about how we handle conflict or don't use our voice or whatever those are those are all the limits that we will hit in intimacy Till we change defensiveness, we'll always hit a limit. Till we hit, change uh, stonewalling, criticism, uh, contempt, uh, quieting our voice, not sharing our thoughts, our needs, our feelings, our boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, when even when you think of someone growing in a relationship and they uh, tend to grow away from the relationship, uh, why is it that? They keep growing away from people and not realizing that you can learn how to maintain your sovereignty in a container of expansion, a relational container. Most people believe that, and they are well served to believe this because historically this is what was true, is that I have to compromise me to be in connection Mm. or I have to compromise connection to be me. And so there's this idea that you can have sovereignty and connection. And so... Sometimes we grow in an individuated state to maintain space between us and another person. And it obviously looks great because we're growing. But what we're, we're sometimes unconsciously doing is sort of self-sabotaging intimacy. Um, and I'm not saying that's always true. It just can sometimes be true because most people have this balance between 
Um, and I'd say it's a relationship to space that's ultimately the issue. And it's that uh, one person needs no space to feel safe, and the other person needs safe space to feel safe. Yeah. And so this is this dance, because this is who you we're usually attracted to. My partner, more space needing. Yeah. Me, more like, don't go. Yeah. I need you close. And not realizing I'm suffocating her, but she's also triggering me. It's like the shadows play off of each other. Right. As opposed to like setting up some chairs for that shadow. And nor- normally we sort of villainize the person who needs a little more space in the relational conversation, at least on more of a surface level. We might even label that narcissistic or something like that. Avoidant behavior often gets labeled as narcissistic. Um, and then for the person who's more the chaser, they take on more of the victim mindset. So they're the polarities as opposed to both people stepping into what would someone of high self-worth do? Oh, I'd bring this trigger forward. You know, and that's whenever I get triggered by my partner or she has feedback for me, I don't like it, you know, but I also know that, and this isn't true of all partners, but this is certainly true of mine. And uh, I would imagine true of yours is that 99% of her feedback is the desire for me to be a better man and a better human. Like nothing comes from this place of like control or manipulation. It's like you have growth available to you. I see it. Are you willing to step into it? And I used to get defensive about that and like shut down and I my worth couldn't hold unworthiness. But now, you know, I realize that the the sort of key to alchemy of that is to be able to sit in humility, to be able to sit in the space of I'm both enough. And I have room for growth. Like to hold those two polarities is to hold so many opposites, but it's to hold all opposites. It's to hold the opposite of that person's conservative and this person's liberal. That person loves vaccines, this person doesn't. That person believes in mass, this person doesn't. All these, uh, and I'm not giving opinions about those things. Yeah. What I'm saying is that can we hold all of it? Because we all have those complexities in us, and to like choose one side and get really co-opted or enraged by one side is to show that we haven't managed to learn how to hold two truths within ourselves. Mm. So we don't have the capacity to hold even our partner's truth. So you think of like you and I, even as as friends, can have a conflict between us and both experiences of the experience are valid. Yeah. Can the relationship container hold that both are valid Mm. and that both neither, neither hurt dismisses the other hurt. Neither suffering dismisses the other suffering. And, you know, I was listening to Ram Das the other day, and he said, I rem- this is one of my favorite lines from his, is he says that as you become more conscious of your behavior, your awareness, he said that you've been taught your whole life to avoid suffering, and now you see suffering as grace, and now you see your triggers as grace. And... It wasn't until really our our breakup, Kylie and I's, that I experienced so much grace in my pain. Mm. And now I can turn, I had some capacity for it, but I did not see the beauty in that complexity in that, uh, you know, because think of all those socialized messages we have to avoid pain. Yeah. To, you know, don't be sad. There's something wrong with you if you, you have sadness or grief. Oh my God, there's something right with you. 
your environment is you're human. You. Exactly. You're here to feel the full spectrum of experience. And if you mm-hmm. cut yourself off at the lows, you will cut yourself off at the highs. Right, right, because you can't do both. And, and even though that like, language of idea of like, grief or sadness being low, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being a spectrum. It's just a movement of energy exactly. within the system. And, and this identification then, if we're sad, there's something wrong with me. Why am I not happy or grateful or whatever? And it's like, let me take a pill. Let me numb. Let me do the thing. It's like, oh, my God, you are, you're being informed in a way. And maybe you've watched generations numb that, that informing information that says, maybe it's not you that's broken, but your environment or your yeah. situation or the world. I mean, how can you not experience grief and look at this world? Mm. You know, always. I know the times that me and my partner have created the space to actually be able to speak our truths to each other, whether they are hard truths, whether they are, you know, something that I don't want to hear, but I always want to hear her truth. Mm-hmm. I would never want to, I would never want to keep the peace and, um, keep the peace to like <laughs> deny our own internal alignment. But right. I, I, know that, I know the times that we have cultivated those containers to share our truth and to even listen to those hard truths. In turn, it has brought us together. It has, Always. It has deepened the connection. It's the bridge. It's the bridge. It's the bridge because even this idea of peace, I'm going to keep the peace or I'm not going to rock the boat or walk, I'm going to walk on eggshells. It's all a fallacy because the peace that's, on the surface is not actually a piece. It's contrived. It's manipulation. It it creates the container. Now an underlying agreement of the relational container is we do not talk about real things. We pretend everything's good. Mm. And what happens then is you're never fully witnessed. Neither person is fully witnessed. And the agreements of the relationship is we don't witness each other. We protect each other from the truth. And look at how much we learn that in family systems or cultures or religions, which are all often synonymous. You know, you, I remember uh, I had a conversation with Resma Menachem who wrote uh, My Grandmother's Hands, and it's about white body supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it was such a beautiful, incredible book. And I remember him saying that unresi- unresolved trauma in a person starts to look a lot like personality. Over time, unresolved trauma in a bunch of people start to look a lot like family. Unresolved trauma in families start to look like community. And over time, communities look like culture. And you start to see of like how much we have been socialized to not actually... And look at all the media and the propaganda that says, don't pay attention to this truth that we can all feel in our bones. Uh, here's we're we're like used to being gaslit. The elephant in the room just keeps growing, right? And it festers, and it becomes the cancer that eventually eats us, right? And and how can you not, when you turn down your awareness on a macro level, even just to a collective experience like uh, media and like things that have been uh, like think about how often, and I'm not getting into conspiracies here. These are proven truths. Yeah. How often the government has lied to people. No matter the country, no matter the community, how often the media has misled. Oh, my God. Like, if you can't even just hold that truth, then you can't hold the complexity of this, right? And, and to know that's true, and sometimes they tell the truth, sure. Uh, but what happens is, on a macro level, if you have to turn down your awareness 
you have to do it on a micro level. Like you can't just turn down the volume to 90% in one area you don't like. It ends up making it so you turn down your awareness in all areas. Mm. Now, uh, you and I were talking about this the other day about um, Paul Selig. Yeah. And, and I remember him saying that like, it's like being a fish living in an aquarium, finding out about the ocean, and going back to the aquarium pretending they don't know about the ocean. To live and exist in a world where you know greater truths exist or deeper truths or realities exist but you pretend that they don't, is to need things like alcohol, drugs, sugar, all the things. And don't get me wrong, I love a good gummy bear to numb reality. <laughs> uh, and, you know, but how can you not? And so that's why it's so important that on this, like, micro level, what occurs between me and my partner um, is a training ground on a macro level. But as soon as you bring the awareness to truth in the micro, you now will wake up to greater truths that have been ignored, and you can't. And so it's so easy to go back to sleep. That's why I think romantic relationships or relationships of all kinds, it could be your parents, it can be anyone, mm-hmm. it can be work, it could be your purpose, it can be your habits when you wake up in the morning. Are you in healthy relationship with self? How about with the earth? Do you step on an ant and think about it? You know, like all of these things, once you just bring some awareness, you know, Ram Dass says you can't just go back and bowling be bowling anymore, you know? And I think that's mm. kind of funny about it. You know, there's, a humili- there's sort of a humor to that. Everyone else is just bowling, and you know, he yeah. makes a joke like, here you are thinking about the metaphysical experience of the pin and the ball and the right, like all this stuff that occupies our mind. Yeah, you know, and then it's like, yeah, once you expand your consciousness to a certain level, <laughs> you, you can go back, but the detriments to your own psychosomatic vessel will be exponential. Inflammation on a biological level, you think of like conflict with other, uh, you know, the studies increases leaky gut, delayed wounding is where they put a little puncture on people's arms and Mm. people who are in high conflict relationships heal slower. Um, There's other ones from the Gottmans where they set up people, you know, who are married, have super high conflict relationships. They're not in conflict at the time, but their body when they're sitting beside each other is as if they are. Yeah. So you think about that on a relationship to other perspective. But then just take it to relationship to self. Like that idea of keeping the peace. Well, when I pretend that I don't have an issue or I hide my voice, which we are all cultured and socialized to do. Um, women are socialized to not share their voice. Men yeah. are socialized to not have emotions. So all yeah. of these acts of self-abandonment and self-betrayal in order to belong Give this actual sense of false belonging. It's not true belonging because you belong to a community, but you don't belong to yourself. It's safety from a facade. Right, exactly. And, and think about how that's the exact same as I'm in a relationship and I'm pretending everything's fine. It's the exact same thing. I think I'm in a relationship, but I'm not actually in the relationship. My representative is. And then I don't feel fully seen. I don't feel fully witnessed. Nor does my partner, because we're both under the agreement that we need to wear masks to be here. And the truth is the invitation to take off the mask. And when one person does it and says, I miss you, I'm hurting, I love you, I need you, I'm scared, whatever it is, that we know on a deep soul level, in our bones, we can feel. Even those words, not even necessarily assigning to any relationship for me. There's something about those words that bring us to a resonance that says, I'm here with you, 
and I'm here to do something with you. I'm here to at least explore reality. And when we do that, we invite the other person to do it too. And if the relationship fractures at that point, it it's must. Meant to, it, it's meant to. It has to. Because as soon as you are in relationship, I'm going to live in the truth, my world wide open. You might go back, which everyone does, because it's like, whoa, this is kind of fucked up and scary. <laughs> like, everyone's lying or everyone's not telling the truth on some level. Um, when we do that, the other person is inspired to do the same. Mm. And they might not know it yet. And it's not your choice for them. Don't we just want to go and, like, tap everyone with this sort of... But it becomes righteous when we want to do that. Right? Yeah. And it becomes this idea that I know better for someone else what is their path when really we all know that like i hear all the time on my instagram i wish i had met you five years ago or heard your stuff three months ago it's like you wouldn't have listened yeah you weren't I ready wouldn't for have it. Listened to me sustainable change has to come from the inside out mm -hmm. you know, if, if it's if it's if if change is um forced or inspired from an outside force it's like it's it's fleeting has to come from the it has to come from the inside and i'm really curious like do you guys within your own relationship do you have a set agreement on like a time and a space where you guys come together to speak your truths or is it is it just like you know anytime you're feeling something do you say it or does it fluctuate i mean what kind of structure is there it just comes through yeah you know and in the like romantic relationship research, they talk about couples that really, they call them uh, relational masters. That's the Gottman's terms. Um, they have a low tolerance for negativity. So what that means is like most of the time we hear messages like, you know, is this the hill I'm going to die on? You know, don't turn a mountain in, or molehill into a mountain, yeah. whatever it is. Um, this idea like to, to not make small things big things. Ooh. Right, it's a practice. Exactly, and in in that research, what it shows is these couples that do exceptionally well don't actually hold on to anything. Mm. As soon as something is true for them, they express it in that moment. So it might be like, you know, maybe we didn't get introduced at a party, or like something just triggered us, and yeah. and when it's safe to do so, we don't do it in front of people. Maybe right after, it's like, hey, when that occurred, this is was my experience, and I wanted to clear it with you. Like in my partnership, very much like the agreement we try to adhere to, and when I say try, I just mean like sometimes you don't consciously know you're not until yeah. you do. And that is that as soon as something comes up, it's we know it's getting in the way of the channel between us. And so it sort of becomes like the the analogy of like plaque on the artery, right? Like I always think of like the flow of love between people or communities is is like a vascular system. And when there are unspoken truths or agreements to ignore something, it blocks the full flow of what's possible, mm -hmm. including our own uh, defensiveness or whatever it might be. Yeah. So we just sort of do. You know, I like to say that at 10 a.m. I can hear her feedback, and that's her assigned time. But I already know I'd get feedback about the assigned time. So I love that it's sort of in real time. I don't always love it because I'm like, oh, I don't have the capacity for this right yeah. now. And so we do honor that. You know, where we're like, I actually don't have a space to hold for this right mm -hmm. now. And the person who's saying, I don't have the time right now, 
it is up to them to provide a time and be the person who returns. Mm. Because otherwise, the other person usually has a wound of rejection and abandonment. Yeah. So for them, it creates safety that when people take space, they come back. So that has to be an agreement. When one person is more of a fleer, yeah. the other person is more of a chaser, um, both people need to gain that relationship to space that we're trusting and nurturing this space or the, the vein or artery between us. Mm-hmm. We're not running from it. We're not like, we're always honoring the sacredness of the union. Yeah. One, you know, for myself, I think that I, in my younger years, I was in a lot of relationships where I did just hide my truth to keep the peace. And I think I've, kind of swung the pendulum to the other side when I'm feeling something, I will say it like it, yeah. it festers up within me and I don't want to hold on to it because I just, you know, from studying the body and emotions and all that, I just don't want it to fester you know. and start to create, you know, more defense systems. And I've just seen myself act out passive aggressively, you know, whether it's just over dinner or something stupid, right. um, not texting back. Like, yeah. Not like, and then I'll just fucking blow up, you know, or, or something like that. Right. So I'm just like, if something's coming up, I have this urge that I just need to speak it right away. And then I, I've, I've gotten the feedback where it's like, okay, yeah, it's not the right time. So I love that with the other partner, you know, if you are expressing something, something to your partner, that partner has the choice to say, okay, this is my boundary right now. I yes. don't have the capacity to hold this but then them taking the responsibility to, um, you know, hit like hit the ping pong ball back when, when it's right for them. Yeah. And the person who often is the like discharger or the pursuer. Yeah. Um, we have to learn how to hold the capacity for emotions. We don't know how to hold on to. Mm. So often we try to discharge them. And like a good example of that is when someone who is normally not boundaried, uh, starts to learn because boundaries aren't just about keeping negative or unwanted behavior out or unwanted circumstances. They're also about containing ourselves. So we're not actually uh, bulldozing someone else's boundary. Yeah. And you could see that sort of in the difference of like what is oversharing versus vulnerability, right? Mm. Oversharing is not getting permission. Someone else hasn't earned the right to the story yet. Yeah. Vulnerability is usually from a place of wisdom and understanding of the situation rather than I can't hold on to these this unworthiness, validate it or don't, because that's yeah. my story. And what I notice is that when you're in this state of um, of wanting to share or wanting to, when you have a boundary, often you'll experience guilt. Like if I say, hey, I can't talk, blah, 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 because we are not used to setting a boundary and choosing self, yeah. and we likely got called selfish or that was the message we got. We don't know how to hold on to the guilt. Mm. But the guilt actually in that is informing us, right? It's like, well, you actually are prioritizing us. Now, normally, we don't know how to hold it. Mm. So we have to learn, and we can expand our capacity, much like we can for, like, uh, discomfort. Yeah. You know, so I'm uncomfortable with what just occurred. Can I hold it instead of just discharging it? Yeah. Right? There is a a piece of time or when you are feeling something and it is uncomfortable before going to just like, you know, word vomit on your partner, sitting with (laughs) it for a moment and like feeling into, okay, is this actually what I'm feeling? 
Yes. And having cultivated, I think, enough inner stillness and enough inner awareness to to know is this is this act is this a molehill or is this a mountain? Right. And that's like, you know, that's the work. And it being okay if it becomes a mountain before it's a molehill. You know, like it's okay that we make what someone might call a molehill into a mountain. It's subjective, though, too. Exactly. So if when we're starting to or trying to classify that, we're usually trying to do it from an other person's experience of us or other. We're projecting someone else's thought about us onto our own thoughts about us. And so often what we do is we minimize our own experience. You know, like Mm. we even think like what is pain that's a 10 for me might be a 2 for you. Yeah, But that doesn't make it not a 10 for me. It just makes it a 2 for you. So your capacity is different. But something else might trigger you in a way that is much greater than it is for me. And, you know, we all know that, like, in the work of trauma, Mm. what is seemingly potentially uh, not a big deal, quote-unquote, is a massive deal. And it's informing that person that there's, uh, you know, nurturing that's acquired in compassion and presence and that's why somatic breath work and somatic work like both separately and together are so important to increase our capacity to learn how to hold it in our body but also get rid of the things that we should no longer be holding that we stored you know you and i were talking about this on the hike the other day that like when we get into this sort of like thought of spirituality or like you know eckhart tolle where we're like oh it's just your pain body don't worry about it Yeah, yeah right but you're biological too. So you, mm. you know, and I, we were talking about this the other day too, the, like that quote from Christ, to be in the world but not of the world. Well, you're still in the world, mm-hmm. you know. But, so can you hold the, how you biologically work, get to know it, nurture your body, nourish it, acknowledge yeah. it, and know that they're not separate. Like your emotional experience is, is dancing with your biological experience. Mm. You know, and I think that's important because so many of us forget that or try to bypass it. Like, yeah. find God and none of it will matter anymore. And it's like God's like, turn towards it. You know, whatever God means for someone. Yeah. The bypassing is usually a product of the mental or the, the it could be spirit, you know, the term spiritual bypassing, I think, is, especially in a lot of these you know, conscious communities, spiritual communities, it's like, we forget that we are these biological beings and we need to really pay homage to it and, and understand it on a deeper level. There's another concept, if we're getting into somatics, that I find really fascinating um, from Peter Levine, and he talks about the concept of reenactment. Mm. And reenactment is when... And I'm sure uh, you see this in relationships so much where people have gone through a traumatic relationship or a stressful relationship, you could say the same thing. And they, you know, they maybe some certain defense systems or, you know, they they, uh, adopted some sort of filtering or, um, you know, innate intelligence of their body that had kept them safe or, or, or kept them in a certain place. Well, say that relationship ends, they begin to call in those same patterns or those same relationships because I think on a base level, we are always like, first, we're always striving for homeostasis. You know, we're always striving for balance within ourselves, And secondly, we're always like, 
life's striving for growth right. in itself. So it is interesting to see people continue to reenact or call in certain sim, uh, situations where they almost like undergo the same trauma over and over and over again to give their biology or their organism a chance to like adopt a new adaptive response yeah, to that. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like the curriculum, right? Till you learn it, you'll just yeah. keep repeating the grade. And and sometimes it gets deeper and more painful. You know, I know it's Tony Robbins, I think, who says that we change when we learn enough, so much we have to or it hurts so much we have to. I think that's true till it's not. Like, I think that, for me, I often waited till I had to do something. Like, yeah. you know, I had to break up with someone or I had to have the conversation or I had to leave or I had to speak. Um, and not realizing that there's such there's a line that's way back that is choose to as soon as you feel something is just micro off choose to and it's interesting as humans that we sort of wait till we have to do a u-turn to, to take the turn you know i i totally agree with peter levine on that and, and you in that like when you look at the work of uh the hendrix harville hendrix getting the love you want they have a it's called a mago and the idea of Imago is that you will attract and be in relationship with people who wound you in a similar way to the parent or caregiver who wounded you the most. And, you know, often I remember when you sort of, it's pretty easy to sort of navigate it and figure it out, but the answer to the question like, what I wanted most as a child and didn't get was. And that usually will be what we don't get in our relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's usually like, to feel like a priority, to be important, to feel understood, to feel safe, any of those things, right? Can you repeat that question again? I think that'll be a journal prompt for lots of people. (laughs) Yeah, so what I wanted most as a child and didn't get was. Mm. And if you look up Harville Hendricks in the the book, Getting the Love You Want, there's um, part of it is writing out the positive and negative qualities of your caregivers, and then you start answering the questions, like what is it that I most wanted and didn't get? Uh, a negative emotion I experienced, right, you know, over and over again was. And that's usually a negative experience or emotion that we experience in our relationships. Or if it's not there, we try to cultivate it because it's familiar. And so what I notice is that people tend to either, let's say that their parent wasn't around or they were abandoned, Mm -hmm. uh, rejected, then they'll either pursue relationships that keep that sort of feeling coming up um, and or they'll pursue people who are always around and like too much controlling, smothering because they're afraid of any space and experiencing that rejection or abandonment as adults. And so really the way out of this is you can change it within relationship because I promise you that we are wounding our partners too in a way they're familiar with is the way out is to start giving us the thing so it's like, what would safety look like for me? What would not abandoning myself look like in this moment? Mm-hmm. So whatever it is we were seeking, we give it to ourselves, and then we're not seeking it from relationship. And what yeah. that does is it, it invites the relationship to be a space for love and connection and yeah. not, not seeking the healing from other, which is, again, what we do so often is we subcontract or contract out the pursuit yeah. of healing. And we want to get it. Choose me. Make me enough. So when you choose me and I'm valid now, if you leave me, I'm no longer valid. So our worth, 
which we are taught and socialized and biologically designed um, you know, on some level to be externalized so that our behavior will, amount, uh, will accommodate, accommodate the family, the culture, the circumstances to belong, mm. uh, which is the same in relationship. If the relationship ends, you are unworthy, you're not enough, you're a failure. Look at all these things we do, right, to, to keep it so if you approve of me, I approve of me. And the true, where sovereignty is truly born and healing is truly born, is do I approve of me? Do I love me? Am I in alignment with my values? Is the religion I choose, is it in alignment with what I actually love and feel is unconditional love? And, and we start to be able to claim our worth back. And that can be as simple as saying, if I loved me, what would I do? And each moment. And, and that starts to create this line. Because, you know, boundaries, they preserve wholeness. <clears throat> so we are already whole. But, you know, what happens is, and I, I wrote about this not that long ago where I was saying that you will always lose things that you place your worth in to remind you that it doesn't live there. And so you almost have to go back and, like, follow the breadcrumbs the treasure trail is probably a better name of it, to go get back parts of yourself that you have left places or given to stories and experiences. And in doing that, you start to uh, alchemize again your wholeness. And you learn through the giving away, right? Like we can experience grief, of course, for the giving away. The anger, often we were children when this occurred, so it's not conscious, it's survival-based. But in the giving away, what you're doing is you're recognizing probably an inherited pattern, right? These are all, we observe behaviors, we inherit what is unhealed. Yeah. And so in the getting back, we are completing ourselves again. And it seems to be sort of the, jur- the journey of being human, you know, is this first this sort of hero's journey of reclamation. And if we're willing to, and to... uh draw that line around our values and who we are. And what you start to see is that the world begins to adjust to you as to us, as opposed to us being chameleons of the world <coughs> or for the world to belong. And so it's a, it never ends, you know? It's always an inside job, but like we look at relationships or in our relationships, we are it's guaranteed that it's going to trigger all of the pieces of ourselves. But within that container, we don't have to place our growth on the relationship itself. The relationship is going to bring up the triggers. And then the work that we do is to reclaim ourselves and all the pieces of ourself. Exactly. That's so well articulated. The idea that the trigger is actually an offer or an offering to look for where you've given yourself away. Because mm. just like we said before, it's like the growth has to come from uh, the inside. It can't come from the outside or it's not sustainable. It's like we can see and we can become aware of our patterns in this playground, which is the relationship. But at the end of the day, it has, we have to come back and it has to be um, ourselves reclaiming all of the pieces of ourselves. 
It's so interesting. I just um, I just did an interview with a, a woman from Soltara Healing Center, which is an ayahuasca retreat, mm. and um, she was saying that uh, the Shipibo shamans they look at trauma, they call it sustos, and they they look at it as a piece of your soul or a piece of your spirit has um, left. Mm. And, and similarly, like we look at it in the trauma sphere, it's like, you know, it's not necessarily what the trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. And usually those defense systems are a piece of yourself has has either left or you know suppressed whatever, it, whatever it is. So the work is always reclaiming all of the pieces of ourself. Mm. Yeah, I think of that. uh that idea of that it is left. And I think there's a important language part, which is this idea that um, if we can hold compassion for the idea that as children, maybe we gave it away in some way for survival. Right. Yeah. And, and so there's and not to shame the experience or minimize the experience, but I'm just talking from like a psychological perspective of where to look at it yeah. from that to say like someone hurt us, and we made that mean something about us. Yeah. And in order to protect from that hurt occurring again, I might need there to always be space or never be space. And that can happen in any attachment injuries, right? It's an intelligent response from the body. It's brilliant. And so if we can honor its brilliance, but also uh, that it is now getting in the way of intimacy or no longer Serving useful, us. Yeah. right? And so that is the adulting. That's the maturation process to move from being a child, which is usually if we're stuck in a child state, we collapse. We're maybe more we're boundaryless. We're people pleasers. To a teenager, which is more reactive, rebellious, sabotaging. And so we can sort of, you know, one thing that when I worked with people, I would say when they were in more of, as we were exploring the work and they're in a more triggered state, I would say like right now the age I feel is. And they could always come up immediately the intelligence is incredible, the somatic intelligence, because they're stuck in this state of being, and it might be, I feel 5, 10, 20, you know, I feel every age up until today, okay, where's the original moment you felt that way? Where did you learn it? And can you go back and, like, hold peace and love for that version of you? Just honor how smart you're psychosomatic vessel was at that at that time which we so much rejected right we reject it because it's getting in the way of intimacy yeah as opposed to seeing that it's actually protecting from pain and so but it's also limiting intimacy now but we want to exile it which is really fascinating as culture and people what we do is we exile behaviors cancel cultures this too we exile things we don't like Mm. and we do the very same thing with the parts of us that we haven't integrated yet. So we exiled the part of us that is a failure because of relationship because our communities do it. Look what we, we generally do to people who are divorced. We shame them. And I remember I wrote this article years ago that was called uh, maybe instead of shaming the divorce, we should learn from them. This idea of like, I think historically how tribes have worked and continue to is this idea that you go out on the adventure, you do the thing, you get hurt, you go to battle, you go do whatever, and you come back 
and the community sits you down and says, teach us. Imagine if we did that with every age to know that there's wisdom in our five-year-old, there's wisdom in our 12-year-old, there's wisdom in our 19-year-old. And we like sat them down in front of us. Every age and activity that has caused us to exile parts of ourselves. And we sat them down in front of us. I did this meditation myself where I just was like, okay, I know I need, I, I judge that and that person because I haven't welcomed that home in myself. And you sit down and you close your eyes and you just imagine them all in front of you. And you go one by one and you ask, what do you have to teach me? What do you have to teach me? How would I live in this moment to honor you? And now we're starting to get the expansion that's available, that alchemical process. Um, I, know, I remember uh, Francis Weller, who's a psychotherapist, and uh, he calls himself a soul activist. I love it. Mm. He says that alchemy doesn't give a shit about the alchemist. All it cares about is your expansion. And I think about that of like the cocoon doesn't give a shit about the, butterf- about the caterpillar. All it cares is that you become. And I think when you can sit down in the cocoon and you can ask each younger version of yourself these things, you welcome them back into your body. And then when that reactivity comes up, the five-year-old is like, hear me. And you're like, I hear you. But you no longer drive the car. And so much of what I learned and continue to learn in the breakup that Kai and I had, is there was just this moment when the child in me had been operating a lot in relationship for as long as I could remember, at least in a subtle ways too when I didn't recognize. And I just remember having this feeling where it was like, the adults here, the child can rest. Like finally, the little boy in me can just, or the teenager can just be like, like I've been here for so long. I've been working so hard to get people to love me and to choose me. And it's like, oh, you don't have to. I was waiting for my adult self to do it. Mm. And man, I used to hear that voice in relationship all the time. Like, choose yourself. Like, what would that mean? Stop chasing it. And it just meant to keep standing in, in what was real for me, what was true for me. And the innate intelligence that I was ignoring just continued to be that I was exiling that intelligent part of myself that sensed ambivalence, that sensed a lack of presence. And I'd be like, shh, it's okay. We'll just keep the peace. And then, you know, you can't. The inflammation comes. The gut issues come. Everything comes. The body is so much smarter. Yeah. It reminds me of almost like little hero's journeys within yourself. You know, just yeah. like you, just like you said, like, as far as the tribal standpoint, it's like you go out on this journey and you, and the, and the object is to come back and share it with your, your tribe, share what you learned. And if we did that for ourselves at every age, like we usually, we, we find ourselves in these very stressful situations where we're facing dragons, we're facing parts of our shadow at all. You know, there's so many miniature heroes journeys with inside other (laughs) ones, you know, um, but really going back to that, say that 15 year old and be like, Oh man, I honor that journey that you went on. Wow. And what, what did you learn from that? Like, what did you, what can I, what did I learn from that within myself and how can I integrate that into my, into my day to day life? I think so much of our work on desire to heal comes from this idea of like, uh, overcoming it 
or uh, claiming it or superseding it or like it's all about this like um, breaking it, you know, like instead of recognizing that sometimes it's actually about a soft surrender, mm. that like it isn't about um, like ransacking it or beating it. Yeah. It's actually about uh, softly acknowledging it. Mm. And I, I, I think as a culture, we don't tend to celebrate that sort of uh, not trying to beat it down, but rather try actually just welcoming it in. And, and that changes the whole idea of healing, that it's something to be achieved rather than something to just be. Relax into. Right, exactly, which is like this <laughs> vigilance or this running away uh, as opposed to just staying. Mm. You know, not staying in suffering, not staying in unhealthy circumstances, but to actually soften into the intelligence that's saying, what do we need? Yeah, it's never a forcing. It's never a forcing. Right, like thinking you have to fix yourself, the very act of that makes you someone who needs fixing. Thinking you need to read a book to, to, to put a piece together, which doesn't mean you can't be informed by the book or experience knowledge from the book or experience healing from healers. But it, when it's this idea that it is sourced outside of you rather than the thing is reminding you that you do it, that's a very different perspective. And if you've always identified as someone who's broken or the other person identifies as someone who heals, it creates a hierarchy within the relationship. And that's why even healers, myself and I included, hate being called a healer. Right. Because I'm not. I am just helping cultivate a space for your body to remember that it heals itself. Yeah, you're the fulcrum and the reference point to this unconditional love and welcoming. And that's like all North Stars, even the idea of calling ourselves a North Star then again creates a hierarchy. So it's like anyone who's doing the healing work does become a reference point. You know, it's like hurt people hurt people, heal people, heal people. But healed people are always still healing. So there's no like completed space. As soon as you think you've completed, you realize, I mean, the universe is going to remind you that you're not. So <laughs> just so good luck. It's with a, that yeah, it's, an, it's a never ending. Um, yeah, it's a never-ending pattern. Right, it is. Well, brother, I want to honor timing, and I just want to say thank you so much for, for sitting down with this conversation. I, I feel like I could just keep picking your brain. You, the, the way that you articulate reality is just, I can just feel how deeply you've, you've sat with it and integrated, integrated it with your own vessel. And I uh, just thank you for the work that you do, brother. I can't thank wait to so drop in you. again. Yeah, me too, brother. Thanks for having me. All right.